What If the Len Bias Story, hosted by Jordan Ritter Khan, is the Ringer's latest narrative podcast. Episodes one and two launch on June 9th, and you can find new episodes every Wednesday on the Book of Basketball 2.0 feed. Here's a quick trailer. You've heard his name, Len Bias, 1980s phenom, second pick in the NBA draft. And then, cocaine, tragedy, one of the most shocking deaths in sports history. 35 years later, Bias's legacy is still making an impact. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, this is What If, the Lynn Bias story. I'm Jordan Ritter Khan. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com. And joining me on the other line, live from Cambodia, it's Andy Greenwald! Cambodge! Oniva! <laughs> Andy, it is the conclusion of our deep watch of the Bureau, a show that we have grown to adore, a show that we've spent a lot of time talking about over the last couple of weeks. We've talked about now we'll have all five seasons handled. We also have a great interview with the show's creator, Eric Rochant, coming at the back half of this podcast. Just so you know, if you want to watch the Bureau, the Bureau is a Sundance Now original series that's available through the streaming bundle AMC Plus. So you can you can find it there uh, wherever you get AMC Plus. And uh, yeah, Andy and I have done um, two other episodes. The first one covered the first two seasons. The second one covered seasons three and four. This episode will cover season five, and we will have this interview with uh, Mr. Rashawn, who was so nice to give us an hour of his time. Monsieur. Monsieur Rashawn. That's right. I I can't say that I'm going to miss you coming through Mm -hmm. with the random French words, but, you know, it's a price I have to pay. Yeah, I mean, you kind of knew when you got into business with me. That's what, true. what what you were dealing with. Andy, let's start by talking a little bit about season five. And then I think we can talk uh, about the show's legacy in general and where we stack sure. it up against others. And then we'll get into our interview with Eric. So, you know, season five, I'm not, I'm not trying to step on some of the stuff that we talk about with Eric, but you made a really uh, good point to him, I thought. Thank you. Which was just about the, as the show progresses through seasons we get further and further away from the inter-office dynamics and the man peering around the hallway or sitting in a cubicle or meet you in the break room and discuss world affairs. It goes from that to an increasing feeling of like boots on the ground, so to speak, and that the tentacles of the show go wider and wider. The feeling of the, the, the show, the visual sort of language of the show changes a bit, and it becomes... I don't know if you'd want to say cinematic although that will become a major part of the end of the series, which we will mm-hmm. get to when Eric Rochant turns the reins over to one of the great film f- French filmmakers, Jacques Odiard. But for you, like, is there a part of you when we get into, you know, Milo Sabord in S- Saudi Arabia and 
Marie Jeanne's in Cairo and pacemakers in Cambodia. And there's the Karloff Malatru stuff in Moscow. And we still got Parisian stuff. And there's more action set pieces in this, in this season, I think, than any other season combined. Mm-hmm. I, I like, does any of the, the luster of the show change for you or the, or, or anything like that? No, I appreciate the question. And I think that we should just note we, we spoke to Eric last week, right when we had both finished our season five watch. So a lot of the comments you're going to hear us saying now, probably we tried out on him first. So there might be a little overlap. You'll hear his answers. And I think that um, this was a theory I had coming into our conversation with him and, you know, ahead of our conversation about the fifth season. But I think it was borne out by what he said, which is, I think the show, one of the many reasons the show is a triumph is because it continued to evolve and chase the passions and interests of its creator and its creative team. We noted when we finished our first podcast about Le Bureau that the show, there's there's a very clear demarcation point when the show changes. And I think it's from season two to season three when suddenly it goes widescreen and obviously the all the things that we were praising about the show continue. The, mm-hmm. the, the reserve, the understatedness, the idea of there being a great game. But all of a sudden, the bodies of our characters are being savaged by dogs. I mean, it's a very different and tactile To say change. nothing of what happens to the bodies of the dogs themselves. Great point. And I don't think we need to put spoiler alerts anymore, except for maybe um, members of PETA. The, um, the thing about the fifth season is it is at once an argument for why the show could go on forever, which <laughs> yeah. is that its characters continue to be fascinating and continue to be to grow in fascination as they're placed in new situations. There are new characters, relatively new, that are now as important to both the show and to the viewer as the ones that came on in the beginning. Uh, and the global circumstances continue to change. So there's so many, there are so many more stories geopolitically to tell. That said, you could also use all of those same arguments as a reason why it was time to stop because we had begun to spin so far outside of the gyre of conflict that started the show, specifically mm-hmm. Guillaume slash Paul uh, and his relationship with Nadia Mansour, that we were going to just continue to iterate into abstraction away from it. And it would be a very different type of show. It would be, frankly, less a prestige show, American or international, and more of a procedural, but maybe one of the best ever. So while I loved aspects of this season, I get it. I get why this was the end, even though it feels like there's a lot more story to tell, certainly with some I characters more than others. I completely agree with you. I could, you know, so the, my, my sort of low-key favorite part of season five is definitely the uh, Mili Sebord Anton character, who is... Thousand flavors, baby. French agent who is sort of hopping around different countries in the Middle East. We see him in Jordan. We see him in Saudi Arabia. We see him in Yemen. He's running technology and weaponry between the Saudis, the Yemenis, He's making deals with warlords. He's basically doubling back on the Saudis who think he's working for them and possibly for, you know, like there's there's a Mossad element, but then it turns out it's yet another Mossad DGSE fake out. He is the indication to me that like this show could have just gone on for 10 more seasons. Yep. You could just keep coming up with a different bureau storyline. And, and in some ways that I kind of love the fact that while all this stuff is happening with Pacemaker and Pavel in Moscow, mm-hmm. there's just other... The, the work never stops. You know, the DGSE never sleeps. There's always other stuff happening. There are other agents in the field. And the, you could just spend season after season. I mean, the show could be about Marie-Jean's DGSE with Jonas as one right. of its lead agents. And, and um, creatively, 
it's really hard to knock what was occurring when we get to season five. I and mean, you mentioned Mil Sabor, who becomes a, who's a central character in the season, one with a lot of story ahead of him, or so it would seem. That character is played by uh, Louis Garrel, a major French actor who, like Matthew Almerich the season before, is like, yeah, okay, yeah. let's go. Let's do this. I mean, I, I, I'm not, despite watching four seasons of Call My Agent, I'm not as fluent in the TMZ culture of Paris to give you an, like a, like, is this, is he the Bradley Cooper of France? I, I, I don't. Or I don't exactly know his level of fame other than he is a major French actor who agreed to do a one season arc on the show, which suggests that many more might continue to do the same, you know, and, and there are many more canvases to paint on. So it's bittersweet. It's bittersweet. And, um, that said, you know, where I'm biting my tongue before we get into talking about the finale, which is one of the most noteworthy things in television, as far as I'm concerned in the last 20 years, let alone for the show, but I, I think it's probably worth noting that while we loved, and we will talk about the, the specific moments that we loved or the, 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 um, the reveals or the developments, unlike in previous seasons, I did feel like we were bopping around and not digging as deep at times. Um, maybe it was because Rashawn, and he, he said this when we spoke to him, you know, knew that he was going to hand over after eight episodes. So he knew he had, that's two hours less that he had to play with. And he wanted to push things into a corner so that whoever took over, and as we learned in our interview, it wasn't always going to be Jacques Odiart, would have some guide rails. Mm -hmm. So maybe because of that, it was harder for me rhythmically to get a feel for the season because Marie-Jean in Cairo was just a, it was, it was a, smaller piece not a symphony like some of these other pieces have been or Neil well, Sabor does some stuff I don't know stuff. if I agree with that you know what I mean I think that Marie-Jean and Cairo winds up becoming a final test that she needs to pass or right, I mean I suppose, I suppose the final test that she really needs to pass is in that conference room when she puts herself forward to become the mm -hmm. head of the GGSC but there's something about the field work she does in Cairo and her survival of that of that hostage situation at the hotel that I think is, a, while, while sort of like tangential to the main storyline of the, of are we, is, is Paul working for us? Is Paul working for them? Can we bring Paul home and can we bring a Russian agent back with him? That's sort of like the main part of the story. But by the time she gets back from Egypt, she's changed, you know, and that's true. It, I think you could make the argument that the Bureau is probably two different characters' stories. It's Guillaume's and Marie-Jean's, you know, and mm -hmm. it's what service to this agency really is about. And, you know, whether or not you're adopting some of the sort of philosophies or managerial styles of Henri Duflo, who is paranoid but kind, and or JJA, who is just paranoid, really, mm -hmm. that sort of forms like their, their kind of philosophy on what this work should be and, and what this what this office should be and whether this office should be anything at all. So I, I kind of put, would push back a little bit. I, I do think that one of the genius aspects of this show is things that seem kind of like a B or C plot wind up actually, even if they don't wind up tying back into the A plot, thematically buttress the A plot. I, I felt that way about Jonas's adventures through the Middle East when he's looking for the IO yes. network. And that finding him at the end of it just on a subway train alone was this incredible counterpart to what Guillaume had been doing, you know? 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's that's right. That's well observed and right. I think that um, one of the things that Rashant told us was that at the end of every season, they left it all on the floor. He used a very French analogy that I won't step on. And he, he left all it, the carrots in the vinegar, you know. Seriously, just nicely shredded, beautiful counterpoint to the heavier meat or fish dish on the main plate. Um, one question they asked themselves was every season was what can we do to these characters that we haven't done already? And obviously putting Marie-Jean in the field was one of them. And we get our answer in the first shot. Well, I was saving that. I mean, we, okay, press pause on the Marie-Jean and Pacemaker storylines for a moment to say, this show, like all great drama shows, like, like many great drama shows, I should say, doesn't lead with humor, but humor exists and it allows it to happen. It allows it to be present. And more, and more than having straight jokes, or a character who is comic relief, although Jonas at times plays that role. The jokes generally emerge from people we have come to know being put in certain situations or whatever, and there's a knowing wink. I don't know if I've laughed as hard at anything in 2021, certainly not even a comedy, than I have at the opening shot of season five of Libero. Yeah, it's Raymond in a particularly uh, unique sexual position. See snuff? I believe is right. what uh, is what we would say uh, <laughs> at the uh, Lecole that I attended. Um, it's so funny. It's so, it's just, they had to know, right? Like I tried to get Rashawn to talk about it. I don't think he really did. But like the idea that this crumb covered schlub yeah. is an international lady killer. If you go back to the first season, he's wearing a turquoise V-neck sweater covered in pastries, mm-hmm. like covered in croissant crumbs. I mean, I think that really the legend in Le Bureau de Legend is Raymond, yeah. you know, and I, I think that they will sing this, they will sing the stories of his accomplishments in men's rights groups throughout uh, the European Union for years to come. So, yeah, that was incredible. But the I agree with you about the Marie Jean thing, because her centrality to the show can't be denied. And is certainly, you know, with the work they did with the flashbacks, too, in terms of her connection to Guillaume mm-hmm. and how she does not. She has sacrificed a lot in her life. She is clearly without great love or partner or companionship uh, in many, many ways, but she has not made bad decisions, you know, and that steers her to where she, at least, you know, as far as we, as far as where we, we are when the series ends, where she wants to be. I guess that part of my, I wonder, maybe you can answer this for me. Maybe some of my dissatisfaction, which is minor. I loved the show and I loved the season. And right. the whole entire thing was redeemed to me by the end, by the way, which we're going to sp- speak about momentarily. But I wonder if it had to do with my knowledge that this was the last season and that episodes were running out. That while I loved the pacemaker drama, and I think the actor, Stefan Crepon, who plays Cesar, is great and surprising in many, many ways. Um, the 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 way that he was just shuffled off the stage struck me. I mean, maybe there was a, it was a comment on some level about how quickly things can turn in this world and how, you know, we saw it with Marina, uh, she's on a mission and then suddenly she's being, you know, exfiltrated post haste. And that's a wrap on her. And then she basically becomes like an office schlub, you know, like she's like training other people is arguably one of the three main characters of this season. And, you know, the, the screws are tightening and he's, is he going to be used as a pawn? Are they going to blow his cover? What's going to happen? And then he's just like, by the way, I'm going to go to Korea. And then we never see him again for the so rest of the series. There's a couple of things that happen in this season. And, and I think in this show in general, that made me 
you know, I, I had to reset mm. and go back to an earlier time of television, you know, where sometimes they'd just be like, you know what, like this cast member might not be working out or, you, you know, we've what decided Pucci returned to his home planet. Right. Well, I mean, like this would happen on Friday Night Lights, you know, like all just voodoo's gone. You know, <laughs> you know like there's just, you know, we've, we've decided that we're going to reboot the show by moving him to a different high school. Landry killed a guy like, th- you know, and Rashawn has talked about his admiration for Friday Night Lights. He's talked about his admiration for shows. He's like, I think five seasons is a really good run for a show. Mm-hmm. It was what we were kind of aiming for. But, you know, Celine disappears. Celine seems like she's going to be a major factor in this show. I think she's sort of somewhat replaced by Liz and a couple of other people in terms of like the role she plays. But Celine's in the show and is just not. And the same thing goes for, you know, Nadia is not in the show in season four, right? Like right. she's barely in it. Uh, Marina is the sort of main um, action driver in a lot of the earlier seasons. I mean, she, her kind of vulnerability is what drives a lot of the the action up until... When she gets out of of Russia, and obviously, and she's not really in season five until sort of towards the end. There is a lack of sentimentality in that aspect of the storytelling that is notable. I mean, first Mm -hmm. of all, Rashawn does speak about this, about his interest in certain characters waxing or waning. But it is sometimes discomforting, I guess, to our American way of watching TV, that there's just not going to be resolution here, that there's not going to be more to it, that just because Marina was, as you said, the central driver of the B plot, if not sometimes the A plot for multiple seasons, she doesn't necessarily have to serve that role again. Because if you think about it that way, all of a sudden you are veering back into, and again, I apologize for using this as the hobby horse or the straw man, it's not fair, but you're back in a homeland territory where everything happens to Carrie Matheson. Right. And it is a show about a star, it's a star-driven show about servicing the stars rather than servicing, you know, a particularly aesthetic vision of quote unquote reality, which I think is what the goal was here. And I think that in retrospect, and I think the show improves in retrospect, and you consider it this way, or in hindsight, the way the series ends and the fact that Rashan handed over his last two episodes as a protection, almost insurance against sentimentality, suggests that this was, it just, it's just a reminder of how important that aspect of the storytelling was throughout. So maybe now that I've seen the finale, even now I'm working this out as I'm talking to you, the way Pacemaker is shuffled off the stage, that fits. That fits. Sure. I mean, what, I mean, what else did he have to do, right? Like... I thought that the reason why I, I, one of the reasons why I liked the fifth season quite a bit, even though I found it probably, I wouldn't say the hardest to follow per se, but it was the one season where I felt like chess pieces were being put into place to satisfy a larger thing that Rashawn wanted to say rather than logically this would happen. So mm-hmm. I think Nadia's cannonballing back into the show makes sense because this show ultimately had to be a tragedy. Mm-hmm. But doesn't make sense because I almost imp- I almost appreciated the fact that like Paul had found this woman in Moscow, had moved on, Nadia had moved on. They had this torrid love affair. And if they had just had that one day in the park in Moscow and just been like, that was crazy what we had together. I kind of think that that would have made a little bit more sense to me or at least it would have tracked better for me. You know what I mean? I totally agree. I do want to say that this season, you know, I think prior to the season, we had fun pointing out the times when there was a little bit of tweaking of America 
from the perspective of, of French and the French government, I think that there probably is no greater tweak than basic Frenchman Raymond Cicerone, lover of the 20, greatest lover of the 21st century, and the one American sex figure we have who's Nadia's boyfriend who's just like, orgasm is overrated. Yeah, right. Incredible. <laughs> Incredible scene. Um, I totally agree with you. It's almost as if there is a increase in the lack of sentimentality everywhere else in order to sneak in the Nadia storyline to bring this to bring the overall series home emotionally. Because to your point, her sudden arrival and then moving to Moscow and then, you know, immediate exfiltration from it's not immediate, but it feels immediate to us was the only time when I felt the larger gears of the show grinding. And it was very jarring because of it. And it's I don't want to ding the show more because I think shows that we have rated very highly do that frequently. And because it's so frequent, we just accept it as part of the machinery. Libero generally was too classy for that. But that said, it was kind of a surprise and it did it did take me out of it a little bit. I guess it's also worth noting, and I think this is probably why you like the season so much, or at least one of the reasons why, I don't think anybody had on their big board that the fifth season of the show, I mean, certainly no one did at the premiere because these characters didn't even exist. The fifth season would be the Karlov season or the no. Karlov and... JJA season. Right. You know, as the and that they were in fact stars. The, the Smiley and Carla of of this series. You know, even the whole time. We, yeah, we didn't even know who JJA was until the season four. So, yeah. So let's say I think we should probably save the Guillaume Paul stuff for when we talk about the finale in a second sure. and just say, like, I mean, this is what we you can when you talk about a great series, you could talk about the writing, you could talk about the direction, the collaboration, whatever. I think probably the most crucial aspect that connects great series across eras and countries is the ability to pivot, the ability to find something incredible and then reroute it's, it, it's everything. It's your ability to, to basically to pull on, on others, the others. You know what I mean? From Lost. It's like, yes. do you have that in That's your right. bag? Do you have an East Dillon in your bag? Do you have the others in your bag? Mm-hmm. I can't think of the Mad Men thing, but, you know, I mean, obviously The Wire did it three or four times you know you know what i mean Where, oh well no no i mean Mad Men did it constantly whether it was with a don draper's love interest or when you know remember suddenly harry hamlin shows up and it's yeah, just going right. bar for bar with john slattery it's like wait what's happening why do i love this it's it's thrilling right yeah i mean i think that um it's funny because we were talking about the sentimentality aspect the show conditions you to just to like characters but not love them in a certain way. You know what I mean? And I think that it actually creates a much healthier relationship between the viewer and the character. You don't... Television tends to um, coach you into almost unhealthy codependencies with it, you know? I think I think about Friday Night Lights in that way. I think about how the pure... Like, fl- the, the heat of the flame people held for that show and for certain characters on that show probably kind of herded it herded those characters into certain places that maybe were not always like the truest. It was at least, it was like the safest. It was like Riggins had to be, you know, even though he had some flaws, Riggins was ultimately like, just like this amazing golden retriever of a guy. And you just would like love to roll with him for the rest of your life, no matter if you're a guy or girl, um, the sort of deification of Tammy Taylor, like all about a bunch of the stuff that happens. It's because like, Television creates these relationships that are so strong. And the Bureau fought against that, I think, by like changing who the eye of God was looking at at any given time, you know, and that way that this guy who you would probably just blink at if you were on a metro with Jonas, you wouldn't think twice about him, had actually just concluded 
a, a tour of the Middle East where he brought down a terrorist network and saved a bunch of people, you know, hundreds of lives. And that's mm-hmm. that's an extraordinary achievement on the part of the show. I think that when you get into Endgame stuff, you start to you start to sort of feel a little bit disoriented because people are coming off the board, not because they're getting killed, but because they're just like, it's here. No, 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 no. It's not here. It's here. No, 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 no. It's actually Paul and Nadia. It was always Paul and Nadia. Let's talk a little bit about JJ though, because I think that the thing that might throw people off about it if they're watching this, and, and maybe I'm speaking for myself, I don't know if I've ever if I've really come to grips with it, is that he has just such like a different vibe than the rest of the show. I think that his anger at the DGSC and his almost like his re- revulsion at his own sort of work, which we learn is sort of self-loathing because of like what he has sort of been through over the years. Mm-hmm. Is it just a, a really different energy to bring into the show and to make as like the show's center, centrifugal force? Don't you think? Absolutely, and it and it shifted slightly. And again, it's a smart course correct because I think there was a there was there was an aspect of his presence in season four that felt like, and this is not based on anything. I don't even think this is how the role originated. But the the impression that I was left with after season four was a bounty of riches. One of the great actors in France would like to join the show or is willing to join the show. And so he's going to embody with great, almost Shakespearean gravitas, the opposition. You know, he was standing in the way of our sentimental storytelling that we seek as viewers, that things would work out for Mary Jean in her authority role, that Paul Lefebvre would be granted another opportunity to come home and thrive. The retinkering between seasons suddenly turned him into not just a Shakespearean performance, but a Shakespearean figure, mm-hmm. right? Where there is this great tragedy at the root of him and there's this complexity. And w- what I loved about it, and yes, I was surprised by just the focus on him for a while until I sort of relaxed and gave into it, was the sadness at the heart of it. And it's actually a sadness that foreshadows Guillaume's downfall, mm-hmm. uh, ultimate downfall. I mean, it's a slow, slow descent, I guess, across five seasons. Um, and this ties into our lack of sentimentality conversation too, because I think the thing that really got me was when he says almost in passing to Raymond, right? I'm out. I'm done. This was it. Right. And it's just not the way we conceive of careers in our own lives with people that we know, admire, or fear. And it's also not the way we think of great television characters that they reach a stopping point, you know, and then he's gone. And I still was waiting for him in the last two episodes. And that was wrong. You know, I, I, I thought that that, that entire, the, the entire construction of essentially a mini life arc was remarkably done. Um, and it also led to, to my mind, my favorite use of the Irishman technology in contemporary <laughs> the television. The Karlov JJA flashback. I mean, that was uncanny. That yeah, was pretty right? great. It was pretty great. I'm still... So your understanding is that he's living in Moscow. He's like a French-born but Moscow Russian-raised. This person. is when he's a young young man. Yeah, yes. when, young man. He, he's essentially he's a he's Russian. He li- right. he's French national, but he's lived his life in Russia. And he's sort of intermingling in the post-Soviet boom of snapping up all these sort of um utilities utilities mining you know all, all the all the like this gold rush that happened that created the oligarch class of russia the so, so, you know you can just google for the names but like this class of guys who came out of the post-soviet bloc owning all the gas or, or all the mm-hmm. copper 
and he's he's sort of involved in I love that auction scene when when they're mm-hmm. buying a mine. And then he gets brought in by Karlov and tortured by Karlov um, and had his family threatened by Karlov to what give up Russian dissidents? Like what what who is he exposing in in those early days? His network basically. Like, who is talking to him? Who is sympathetic to him? Who is interested in collaborating with the West, right? Who who are his sources, basically? And he wants him to blow his whole network, which he does, but he does with, um, you know, a level of methodology that he's not only going to go so high, and then he's going to take the rest of the, take the rest of it on the chin, right? which, you know, infuriates Karlov and leads to, you know, I, I think he's imprisoned for a few years, uh, but it also allows him a second chance, which, you know, make then makes his fury at Guillaume um, more complicated. And mm-hmm. then also his his strategic forgiveness of Guillaume a little bit more consistent. Yeah. And then Karlov is, you know, essentially this, I mean, I love how Karlov is unabashedly like, this is, this is the same as when it was the USSR. <laughs> it's like, and, and we should know, say Alexei Gorbanov. Like yeah. this Ukrainian actor, because you called it like from his first appearance in season four, you were like, I love this guy. And yeah, then I, just I didn't know we were going here with him. Everything I had no idea. for him was details. Like everything for him was the hearing aids or like everything for him. I was just like, what an amazingly well-drawn character. Mm. And, you know, I don't even know. He doesn't even speak, get to speak his native tongue that much in this show. He's usually speaking English or French, right? Well, until this season. I mean, in, in five, because he, he, he starts speaking to Pavel exclusively right. in Russian. That's right. But, but up until the season, he's 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 basically to your point. He's he is acting with a hand tied behind his back, if not two hands, and he's still killing it. Right. And his I, there's the sort of what role he plays up until the ODR episodes, and and the role he plays in those episodes. I think honestly, in those episodes, he is the most human and the most kind of heartbreaking character that the show mm-hmm. creates. Up until then, he's essentially the heavy, although he's a heavy with kind of a sentimentality and a sense of humor. And I think that the whole thing that's so fascinating about this this game that they play with one another is the way that to entice someone to do the kind of work that they have to do, you do have to basically simulate a connection, you know? Mm-hmm. But that connection can also be your own downfall. It's so brutal. And it, and it you know, it's echoed later by Marina when she's talking to Jonas. Like, the goal is not to lie. Mm-hmm. The goal in everything you do is to live your life truthfully and to be present i mean it, it, and and what i what i loved about this last season and particularly through the karlov storyline you know he once once the the circumstance of their work relationship changes he genuinely likes guillaume you know he genuinely invites him into his home are there extra layers of guardrails of course but he invites him into his home it matters to him and and we see him with a medal i mean he he he's prideful he has human emotions and you know, one day maybe we'll take a moment and talk about, or someone will write a better essay than either of us could about, you know, some a show like The Americans versus Le Bureau and 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 the way it uses spycraft as a just living, functioning skin suit analogy for how to be a person in the world. Yeah. Um, and what I really loved about this fifth season was the way it revealed that so artfully. You know, I think The Americans, a show that I adored, obviously, was about marriage. And then it was about the fictions we bring into that, et cetera, et cetera. The Bureau has primarily been about the work. And then, you know, by slowly, 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 slowly drawing back the curtain, we see that it is actually showing you that 
to be good at this. You have to use the skills of being a good human, but you also have to be ready to shut them all down. Yeah. You know, and and in a way that is savage, but it is so clean. The person whose life you've just destroyed ends up respecting you, even as he makes final steps to destroy your life in in turn. Right. So there's a couple of B plots that I thought, I mean, I don't really have a lot to say about the the hacking of the Belgian hospital or Anton's, you know, movements through Yemen and Saudi Arabia. I think that this show ends twice. It concludes with seven and eight, which are arguably the most electrifying episodes in the entire season. It's it, the, the, that's the episode where there's the raid on the the Cairo hotel where Marie Jean is the security manager or like Moonlight Ants. Great set piece, fucking awesome, and um, basically hinges on Jonas remembering a passing remark that someone makes to him at a hotel bar so that he can uh, alert Marie Jean that about that, looking like a she camel. Yeah, right. And then it and then it has. I guess what we can call the Rochant finale, which is episode eight, which is this uh, cat and mouse game s- scored with Micro House that goes for essentially the entire episode of Raymond and Guillaume trying to get Nadia out of Moscow and then set Karlov up for the turn. Basically set Karlov up to box him in and say, you either work for us or you'll probably get imprisoned or executed by the Russians. Yep. So... The moment that Karlov realizes this when he's like sweating in Cambodia and he makes that phone call and I, I think either there's been a number like he like what is it the number doesn't pick up or something when he calls Paul or something. It's just so such such great, great international filmmaking. Like the the idea mm-hmm. that this guy is like chasing his own survival across the world is fucking awesome but tell me what you thought of those those last two Roshan episodes before we get to the actual finale I thought I mean how crazy is it for a show to successfully end twice right I mean most shows don't do it once it's remarkable I think you've really described it well because I think that they are just absolute victory laps for what the show was capable of and what it became the confidence with which it does the action set piece in Cairo with which it does the international house of cards tumbling down with Karlov. The way that the paranoia that has been run through four and a half seasons of the show comes to a beautiful, if maddening, fruition in the Nadia exfiltration. It's just championship level stuff. And specifically that point about paranoia, I want to return to because the construction of the show is so artful in retrospect, where in the first season, we learn about spycraft through Guillaume's behavior and what he brings back, but also specifically what he teaches to Marina. And part of it is to, there's a, you have to be methodical. You have to do certain things. Like remember in the early seasons when he was always driving into the underground parking garage and switching cars or the implication that's driven into us is that you have to do these things every day, regardless of someone's watching you. Yeah. Right. And what you reap when you sow that after a number of years is that delicious feeling in Moscow where probably no one knows what they're doing. No right. one's checking for her. They're not looking. Later, we find out that the, the you know the the inter- internal affairs guy be- is beginning. Yeah. It, yeah, he's starting to sniff around, and he is looking, and he, he has been. But until he gets transferred to Kabul, 
<laughs> That's a rough look from my guy. But he shouldn't have been walking into uh, massage chambers in Cambodia unannounced. You know what I mean? I just feel like that was the beginning we're of his gonna, downfall. We're going to do that to Kaya if she ever uh, tries to tell us we can't go for longer than an hour again. We're just going to be like, enjoy recording podcasts in, in Kabul. <laughs> what is the Kabul of America? Well, we'll come back to that. I think... Um, the cafe thing, you know, when he's like, tell your friend this, get up now. And then the man's walking towards her and the car's going towards her and your heart stops. And your heart stops because you are trained to expect something bad's going to happen. But also you have now completely bought into their own worldview and paranoia. And it was phenomenal. And so I'm not, so I loved it. I took it, I paused it there. We paused it. We took a day to kind of breathe and think about it. And now let's pivot to just, people know this, we've been talking about it from the beginning. But even if, this show wasn't a masterpiece and one of the best shows of the 21st century. It should still be talked about, written about, and studied for what happens next. And we, Eric Rashant spoke to us about it in detail, so we won't step on his answers. Yeah. But the short version is, he felt very strongly that someone else should finish his show. And what was interesting to learn is that he didn't necessarily think it was going to be acclaimed French filmmaker Jacques Audiard. He was just looking for a collaborator who would be different than him, brilliant and visionary and hardworking in different ways. And also um, someone who would, and this is his words, be brave enough to clean up someone else's mess, basically. And Odiard is a phenomenal filmmaker and someone who's very interested in just kind of getting into it. You know what I mean? Like I, I, in his movie, his, it's probably his best known movie is A Prophet. Um yeah. Amazing which movie. is a masterpiece. And recently I just watched his, his Palme d'Or winner at Cannes, a movie called Deepon, which is phenomenal. And also very much like, okay, now I'm just going to make a movie. I mean, I, I, mean I, I found this man who was a former Tamil Tiger and has now been living in France. And I'm going to make him the star of a movie loosely based on his life set in essentially a council estate. And it's riveting. It's phenomenal. And he just seems to be kind of fearless as a filmmaker. So what Rashan did was set up everything and then handed him the reins. And as he told us, went to work for him only like as a staff writer being like, if you need something, I'll help, but you have complete control for life and death for the story you want to tell, whatever. And I'm floored by what he came up with. Yeah. I apologies for the monologue, but I was so moved by this on so many levels. And it's hard not to think about it in the context of all the TV we've talked about and all the TV we've watched and all the, you know, reviewing that I did for all those years. The best, I mean, generally you can say this, and this is an analogy from a different uh, field, but I think it's relevant here. You've probably heard this, right? That like politicians, you campaign in poetry, but you govern in prose. So you can make all of your lofty promises and your stem winding speeches and you got to get into it and you got to call Joe Manchin and try and figure shit out or whatever. And it gets kind of gnarly. And TV shows generally begin with poetry, with like this sweeping, right. um, you know, a pilot where anything is possible and you end with a song and what could this world be? And then pretty soon it becomes a TV show. Sure. I have never experienced a TV show, especially a long multi-season running TV show that achieved liftoff and left the atmosphere at the end. I wish more people did this and I can't imagine ever being brave enough to, to give someone's baby away. But TV show finales, even successful ones, are generally about the TV show, not the story. You think about Mad Men, and I'm not going to spoil it for people who haven't watched it, but I wrote a negative review of the finale because 
it basically went character by, I mean, it did a lot more than this. This is very reductive. But one of the things that I was negative about was that it went character by character and squared the circles. You get a happy ending. You get a mixed ending. You get Mm -hmm. a happy ending. But we're going to just knock it off on our punch list and then move on. He handed the show off to someone who was just like, no, this is what the show is about to me. And I'm going to get lyrical and emotional and break every convention of storytelling you've done up to now. And also deliver something that is phenomenal gut punch on a plot level, but deeply moving on an artistic level in ways that I have been thinking about ever since. And I am, I'm, I'm really, I'm really in awe. We didn't need this finale for it to be a successful show, but oh my God, we got it. Yeah, I think that, it's really interesting to read the New York Times article that Elizabeth Vincentelli wrote about the handover of to Odiard and then the reaction in France and the reaction I mean, even among this was the last cast, summer when it when it premiered right and the, even the reaction among some of the cast members. Um, I don't know. I think that I loved it. I think I am still like somewhat partial to the the tone of seven and eight than I was to nine and ten, but that. What 9 and 10 did, what ODR did, was kind of clarify what the show was about. And that's, like, I I personally maybe was, like, you know, was Nadia's death the actual, like, point of the Bureau? No. Was her death, was, was her death a function of the fact that Paul literally could not go home again? That he was, that he was never going to get to be, go back and be Guillaume and live in Paris and go to an office job and be Prune's father and live with Nadia and learn what that was going to be like. Yes, like that had to happen. Do I understand how long the Uzbeki guy was waiting at that corner for Nadia to drive by? I do not. <laughs> are there aspects of it that are a little confusing in that regard? They are. But I think that is a as a, a grace note, as a final statement, it really, really, really is astonishing. And like you're saying, unlike any other conclusion to a major show that we've we've ever talked about. I wonder if also we are both very warmly disposed towards the finale, both because it is just noticeably an artistic and aesthetic leap forward. I mean, I, I couldn't de- get over I think the it would sound. Be, yeah, it, de- it was a departure. I, I, a departure, I thought- but, I, but, I, but I have to say just like the sense of place and like the sound design and the looking out over the fields and the birds and all of it was just really haunting in a beautiful way. I also felt very centered and safe right from the beginning of the handover. I mean, it's an analogy we use all the time. We talk oh, yeah. about shows I never that, was like, oh, you, you fucked up. You, you guys, this is too much of a jolt. Yeah. But specifically, like, we've used this analogy before, but there's a moment, and, you know, usually, I usually fight it, but when you give over control of a narrative to whoever's driving and you trust them and you go along with the show... And you mean you usually me, fight it like when we're podcasting and I'm trying I'm trying to get you to change the subject? I, I fight you all the time, like right now. <laughs> but I but I mean specifically, I felt at ease because though I don't know Jacques Odiard and have a very different, you know, life experience and point of view, I also would have arrived at the cusp of episode five oh nine and been like, the only thing missing from the show is Jonas fucking. Like that's, that's right. what's that's left. How it what story is left to tell? <laughs> yeah. Um, shout out to Jonas, by the way, the, a comedian named Artus, who, as I learned after watching these episodes, is the host of Nailed It France, which is one of the most jarring streaming experiences you can have if you jump from one to the other. And I definitely <laughs> recommend you do it after you finish season five. But let's talk about the choices he made because I think that um, they were very interesting and some are very like, this dude won a palm door. Like we're going to tell Guillaume's story through um, hand-to-hand wrestling with the therapist. But others were 
well chosen, which is to say that the Jonas storyline, that could have been a season long thing. I got the feeling it, like it almost was. You know what I mean? Like but, I got the feeling like it was essentially if you were going to do a season six, figuring out who is chasing Jonas would be it, you know, and why the Russians had identified him. But maybe if this is a, a cinematic approach rather than a TV one, we got it. We got what we needed to get because we understand the character and we know his heartbreak and his sacrifice. And I thought that right. was very well played. The other piece of it was the tragedy of Karloff, which is basically handed over to Odiard and mm-hmm. done. I can't imagine we didn't, you know, we didn't ask him to prove it, but I can't imagine Rashant would have done it differently. And it, as you said, it went from him being a heavy who had a role to play on a chessboard to just something deeply tragic, human and, and affecting. Yeah, and the introduction of his family is so gracefully handled where you're like, oh, interesting. They're, they have his family here to like suggest that this guy also has a life outside of, of um, mm-hmm. torturing French agents. And then you realize that that's going to be the sort of, that's going to be his Achilles heel is the fact that he knows that, I mean, what does Raymond say? He's like, when, when they find out that he's, he's killed himself, they were basically like, he made sure they had their passports and now they're safe forever right? Because they yep. can go off and they're of no real material use to the Russians anymore, so they're not going to threaten them, presumably. Uh, and, you know, yeah, his his kid's going to go off and go to culinary school and his wife will be, you know, do whatever and watch Top Chef. And Did you feel in any way attacked by that? That that was, or, or, or was that actually calming that he chose to spend his last evening with his family watching what With his I hearing assume... aids out, so I assume he doesn't hear a lot of the banter. Um, this stuff with uh, can, I, can I just ask you, like, did you really understand the Uzbeki hitman that he hires to visit his Airbnb? And yeah, yeah, I did. mean, it, yeah, he's basically. I mean, like, I understand that he's like, I'm going to kill Nadia. Go kill Nadia, yeah. But and so he just told I, I mean, her, he told like, him where she lived, and right. he was posted up waiting, basically. Yeah. And then, then he definitely killed her, and I mean, that was horrifying, you know. Yeah. And again, it was brilliant storytelling because you know something bad's happening. Everything after 49 and a half hours of television is screaming that it not be this, not like mm-hmm. this. And then it's also that little awful bit of choice a fake that out that it could be pruned. It could be pruned, which is even more horrific, you know, right. and I, I'm sitting here like doing you love it and you hate it when you're watching something wholly with your whole mind and heart. But you're also doing the moral calculus on the couch being like, well, Karlov has a family and he I, that's off limits. Right. There's something that is off limits. But Nadia was in the game. And so she somehow okay. I mean, he, they have a code. And I think that, you know, generally the, the people on both sides of, or any side of the conflict understand that and respect it. And that goes back to Le Carre, an author we talked to sure. Rashawn about. Um, the, the tragedy of it, I think was essential and still, and though probably inevitable, it was still kind of surprising because we've talked about how one of the amazing things about the show was that it kept its central premise spinning out legitimately for five seasons, which is this guy does one thing. He makes a, he, he call, you know, he makes the mistake of calling the woman he was in love with as someone else and mm-hmm. then thinks he can pull it off. And he continues to make that mistake uh, and, and all and deal with the repercussions, but he continues to think he can beat it and he keeps beating it. You know, we talked in our last podcast that he could have been dead at the end of season four. It was a great fake out and I was w- willing to believe it. Yeah. We didn't even, ta- we didn't even talk about the fact that he's not in the first episode of season five. And it, there is a little bit of a, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I don't, it's not like, it. yeah, exactly. Right. It's their own little Jon Snow thing. But he, 
he keeps winning and you cannot help but think of this with your sentimental American TV watching brain like he's going to get out of it. And right. not only is he going to get out of it, he's going to get out of it for future adventures, if not the happy ending that he dreamed. And then all of a sudden you're running out of road and you're running out of road and you're running out of road and you realize that the show is always keeping tabs of what he was doing. And it is, this is something that was similar to Breaking Bad to me where like there were people who at the end of Breaking Bad were like, wait, Walter's awesome. What happened yeah. to him? Yeah. And it's like, actually the show, like The Sopranos was playing a very tricky and artful moral game with you where you aligned yourself and rooted for the villain. Mm-hmm. And you abandoned your and own actively, sense of actively rooted against the moral character of Skylar, you know, like. Exactly, exactly. And and that's where we are again here. And I think, and I, again, we don't want to step on it because Rashad speaks beautifully and surprisingly about it, but it, it takes us after Guillaume and Mary John have their mental telepathy scene straight out of X-Men First Class, which that's also right. I loved. I loved it. You know, take, I thought it was okay. Take, I, I think take that, the chance, Jacques. Go I for it. I think the dreaminess you know I mean? of, of the end of the show worked in some places and didn't work always for me in other places. But I appreciate I appreciate I don't think the you're alone leap. in that. Yeah, I appreciate the leap. And I think it was I think it was extraordinary as, as an idea, even if I didn't always love the like result. And all that was leading to this Last Supper dream sequence. Yeah. Which where, where all of our old friends or foes are gathered around a table and God bless Henri Duflo, guy Come, showing up again back. Yeah, right. to repeat the, his last lines of life, that it's, it's foolish, it's all nonsense, c'est fou, c'est fou. And our man, um, Anatoly, from uh, the FSB agent in uh, in the Middle East yep. is there. And I think, you, you know, the, the, the other torturer is there. Like everyone who, some we recognize, some we don't, who were victims of Guillaume's mistakes. His game, yeah. Um, and it is, it's artful. I mean, that's the show takes flight there. I mean, you're either buying it or you're not. You're buying a ticket or you're not. But there was something that was just, it's what fil- some filmmakers can do, you know? And, the, it, it, and it had the kind of like beautiful dream emotional logic that David Lynch has for me and other people. And it just worked in it. Like I keep saying, you know, the show could have ended with tragedy. The Americans ended with some sense of tragedy. I won't spoil it, but that left me feeling kind of cold because it felt right. Right. Okay. Those were the boxes left to tick and we ticked them in this direction. This ended up in a place that, you know, you could have potentially predicted if you watched the first season, you wouldn't get the particulars right, but you could have, I don't think Uzbekistan would have figured into it, but you could have been like, well, this won't end well. <laughs> yeah. Right. But I, but it, 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 it put it into the realm of poetry and, and, we would have been doing the series without this ending, but I can't oh, for sure. stop raving about it. Yeah, I you know, I would just also say that the one of the reasons why I loved, I did wind up loving what happened with, not what happened to Nadia, but the fact that Nadia comes back into this season is there's an exchange that they have where they're talking about how they don't really know what it's like to like live with one another for more than a couple mm-hmm. of days at a time. And the reason why I think she comes back to him in the first place, or the reason why after the first time she sees him, she's intoxicated all over again is because there is something alluring about this kind of life that, you know, he's like, I may have to call you one day with a code phrase. And that means you'll have to drop everything and leave. Mm -hmm. And we'll, we'll have to go through this crazy thing where you dropping your phone in a trash can and changing outfits in the school bathroom and taking cars here and there. And then, 
you know, I mentioned this to Eric, but like in a very romantic way, like the place that she's trying to get to out of Moscow when all the flights get canceled are is Casablanca. You know, they are uh, the lovers on the run for that episode. And it's that it's that very intoxication with that life that gets her killed. Because if she had just stayed with the American guy that she worked with who d- doesn't care about his own sexual satisfaction, she'd probably still be alive. You know, she wouldn't have been be of any use to Karlov. And at the end, that's that's who Karlov uses to to get his revenge from beyond the grave. We should get to our it, interview. It, with- it's just, just the last thing before we get to the interview. In the interview, Eric Rashan sort of tosses away, and I appreciated it, this theory that a friend had given to me about this amorfu, like the crazy love. And he he dismisses it, and I'll, I'll let him speak for himself on that. But your point really drives home that there is a romance here. And there is a, you know, and it reminds me, I just mentioned The Sopranos when David Chase would be like, no, you dummies. And he got so angry at his audience, right, for like rooting for yeah. the bad guys, and he almost wanted to punish the audience. There's something kind of incredible about this, that this, these people are all control freaks and lunatics and parano- paranoiacs but they get swept up in the romance of what they do. They love, they love it, right? There is a romance to it and you can feel it crackling even in the relatively minor scenes of Marina and Mil Sabor where you're like, is this a sex scene or are they just trading a water bottle in a Jeep? You know, because there's something that is so othering about this life where you can play pretend and play dress up and escape. And that mirrors our own relationship with it as an audience in a way that I think is really beautiful. I would just say that just as a conclusion for for all of this, that this has been a wonderful experience to go through this show. It's it's kind of funny. We, you know, I I have thought before about how we should go back and and watch something from 2012 or 2014 mm-hmm. and and you know do a deep dive on something. And you know, for as much TV as we talk about, I'm sure not enough for for everybody's taste, but for as much TV as we talk about. It's kind of awesome that there's still stuff out there that could mean this much to me that I didn't even know existed last year um somehow and uh you know i think i had started the bureau once or twice and gotten as far as nadia and paul's like hotel love scene in the first episode and been like i'm sure i'll watch this but like i'm just not in the mood like this you just... made it to the first scene well no i was just like it just is like really french and and i'll, I'll yeah. get to it but like i i didn't even i just didn't push myself and then the other stuff came up and it was outside of the kind of cycle of uh what's mm-hmm. on right now what are people talking about and, you know, I'm so glad we did this. It's it's one of my favorite shows I think I've ever seen, candidly. Um, that's a very personal choice because of my affinity for, like, the material. But I do think that it's kind of as good as television can be in a lot of ways. Yeah, and gave us, like the best shows, a roadmap for what TV could still become in a really exciting way, both artistically and, you know, the way that it evolved and iterated and grew and even relinquished control, which is the hardest thing for any field agent or showrunner to do. It was thrilling. I adored the show, as you said, for its subject matter, for its execution, for its brilliant performances, almost all of which we've given short shrift to as we've been trying to get through the plot. But I also truly loved the experience, you know, of having it all there for us, Mm -hmm. um, like a cafeteria meal at the DGSE and just choosing our portions, and then having a proper and complete meal, sitting down with each other and talking the way the French uh, would have wanted us to. That's something Eric talked about. And I think the, the best note to leave on before we get into this interview was just that he also speaks about what he'd like to do next. And while a sixth season probably isn't in the offing, it does sound like he agrees with us that there is a lot more in this world, not just yeah our wor- real world, but the world of... The yeah, it seems like this like This is the canvas he wants to paint on. He just wants to paint in different parts of the world. And uh, he's already painted one masterpiece. 
<laughs> Let's get into our interview with Eric Rashant and you know we'll have a playlist where you can listen to all three of these episodes about the bureau and I hope everybody you know obviously if you've gotten to this point you've checked it out but I hope everybody enjoyed uh, watching along with us. Merci beaucoup à tous. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy and right now they have unlimited talk text and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com watch. That's mintmobile.com watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I think we should begin by saying an enormous merci beaucoup for Eric Rochon for joining us on The Watch. Eric is the Hello. creator, showrunner of what has become our obsession, our favorite show of 2020, and easily one of our favorite shows of the century, Le Bureau. Uh, bienvenue, wow. Eric. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Merci beaucoup. How are you? How's everybody? I'm very pleased to be here with you. We're doing so well. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. I was wondering whether or not... Uh, if we had done this interview maybe last year, if we had done this interview a, a year or two ago, have your feelings changed about the Bureau in, the, in sort of as it's completed its run, as it's finished, and you've had some time to sit with it? Yes, I, I, could, uh, I could keep on doing it for many years because the reality gives us so much material to talk about and so much... Uh, fascinating situation to analyze and to, you know, with the China, with China, for example, or a lot of things that happened in the world, and obviously uh, the COVID crisis. But um, I thought that uh, maybe I didn't have a, a much uh, um, enough inspiration for the characters. And I need to to break, I need to stop because uh, the danger when you do a show like that, I think maybe is that you, you are not sure to be, uh, you know, to, to say something new about your character, no, not about the situation or the world and everything, but about your characters. And I didn't want to be through with them. I, I really want to love them and to keep on loving them. And I want, I don't want to be bored with them. So uh, that's why I, I need, uh, I, I, I had the feeling that I had to stop. We love them as well, very much. And we would like to return to uh, talking about them uh, specifically in a moment, um, as well as the future plans for maybe this world and as, for you as well. But I thought it would be useful to go back to the very beginning. Um, yeah. I'm not sure that you know that we have been doing a special project watching season by season, talking about season by season. So many of our listeners started the show when we did, not in 2015, but 
this year. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the state of French television in 2014, 2015, when you began this show, and also why, uh, and, and why you felt that it was a great opportunity to tell this type of story in this way. Well, uh, I should run two seasons of a show that I I haven't created myself. It was Mafiosa by the Corsican Mafia. And I did it because uh, I always wanted to do a show that I, uh, I, I always wanted to create a show myself, but I, 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 re- I didn't know anything about TV in France. I'm a movie director. I, I, do, uh, I was doing feature movies. But I wanted to, to know how we do TV in France. How do we do that? How is the state of, of the TV show in France? So this is why I accepted the proposition to write and direct Mafiosa. And I realized it was not the good way to do shows in France because uh, I think the good way to do shows is, is what we do in, uh, in America. With the showrunner, with the writing room, and to produce a show one season a year. That was, it was not the, the case in France. So uh, after I made this movie, Mobius, which is a spy movie with Jean Dujardin, I had and, the and I must say, it features Karlov as well. I was happy to see. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I really Absolutely. enjoyed seeing him yeah. in a different <laughs> role. Um, I had the opportunity to bring this new idea to Canal because I, I felt ready to do a show about the intelligence services in France. And 20 years before that, when I did the, 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 the movie The Patriots, uh, I never felt that the French services was a very good uh, subject for a story. It was not sexy enough. <laughs> but uh, 20 years after that, uh, I think that uh, doing a show about the secret services was a good thing to do because TV shows are really fitted for this task describing uh, a job describing a, a line of work. So for me, doing a show about secret services was uh, the things to do was the thing to do at this moment. Uh, and uh, because of Mobius, it was a big big movie, uh, you know, big uh, spy movie. Uh, I had this opportunity to talk with Canal, and I, I told them, "This is what I want to do now." You know me because I did Mafiosa with you. I did the Patriots, I did Mobius, so I, you know, I, I'm the guy who knows a, a little bit about spies and intelligence services. And then I think that we can do a show about French services, but I want to do it like the Americans do. I want to do it with, uh, in the American way. And so I, we had to change a lot of things to do that. We have to, they, Canal Plus had to change the behaviors and, and uh, the, the, the habits. And uh, we had to change a lot of things in the French way to do shows. Uh, especially the idea, the concept of show running was not very uh, common in France. And uh, so we had to invent all this universe uh, doing a show. When they asked you, uh, what about the problem 
that the French Secret Service is not sexy, did you just say Raymond Cisteron? Was that your answer? <laughs> the solution to the problem? No. Uh, it appears that uh, when we created the show, uh, it was uh, the, the world has changed. And terrorism in France, uh, like in England, in Europe, changed our vision of secrets, our own secret services. Uh, we want them to be good. You know, we want them to protect us. So our vision of the, the, the spy, our spies, uh, changed a lot. So it was also the time to, to do a show about it. And um, my own vision was very uh, different because I really need them to do their job, to be, I need them to be good. I, 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 and I don't care about what, how, uh, how they do it. I want them to do it good, you know? And it's very different from 20 years ago. So that's why I think that we could do this, this show and it helped the secret services to have this show. They could, you know, they could use it to have a different image of themselves, uh, you know, in the country. What was the image before? Before the show, how are they sort of perceived? Uh, before the show, nobody knows knew anything about them. But you know, when um, every year for every season, we used to do a premiere for uh, some agent of the GSC. They were the first audience of the show, and. The first time it was very moving because we, we didn't know how they would react. But they really loved the show and they were very welcome and they were very fun of the show. And the thing they told us is just that, thank you, because now we, we can't say anything about our job to our phones. We can't say anything. And so um, we... We can talk about our job. We can talk about. We can't talk about our bosses, about our, you know, anxious anxiety, about our problems. And now that we have this show, and it, it, which is really realistic, and they were stunned about uh, about the realism of the show. Now we can say our families. We can tell them, look at the show. This is my life, and and they were really, you know, thankful for that. One of the things, um, I mean, you, you, you'd mentioned that the idea of a showrunner, that was a more of an American invention. But one of the great pleasures, I think, in watching the show is the French perspective. And we have been told by, by friends or colleagues who have lived in France or spoke, spoken French that even when we talk about it, we are too American. <laughs> and so there are three categories I would love to bring up with you to say, are these, do you, in your opinion... Are they particularly French and are they crucial to our understanding of the show coming from America? So number one, the cafeteria. The cafeteria is a major character from the first season. And Chris and I noticed immediately how everyone had a beautiful plate of carrots, how even the most severe bosses like, like Michel Pont has a lovely fruit salad. And it's very moving that these very busy men take time and women take time to have a proper lunch every day. Yeah. How French is this and how important was that to communicate? And, and understand you're speaking to two guys who just shovel salad into their mouths in front of their computers every day. 
yes, this, this is it's very French. But I heard that in the CIA in Langley, uh, they have not a cafeteria, but they have a kind of uh, Starbucks. I don't know. And so, uh, and they meet them. They have coffees, and they meet uh, in the uh, you know it's some of this kind of cafeteria. So yes, it's French because we, you know, and it's the same difference. For example, when you shoot a movie in France, we you stop one hour a day for the lunch. Mm, wonderful. Uh, in America, <laughs> only only half an hour. And you don't sit at the table, you know. You go to the to the catering. You have you have I don't know a chili and and then you or a sandwich. In France, you know, you have to stop one hour. And uh, and um, and now, I think that you don't have a bottle of wine anymore. You know, it's <laughs> now it's forbidden. But ten years, ten or or twenty years ago, you had wine at the table, and this is why you had to do all the, the very important things. You had to do it in the morning because after lunch, <laughs> well, sleepy. it was, you know, yeah. yeah, it was a little bit sleepy. You had to take the Don Draper nap. Yeah. <laughs> so, so two, so two more, French, yes. two more points, um, slightly more serious. One was immediately, there's a beautiful sense of restraint, particularly noticeable in the first season where I think our American brains were expecting guns to be drawn, violence to happen. And especially in the first two seasons, it de-escalates in a much more surprising direction. And it goes back into, um, I'll, I'll leave it at that, the this, this sense of restraint that, that moved us so much in the storytelling. My project was to, to do a realistic show. So I had to describe the job of this intelligence officers as it, as it is. And they are not often in the field. They are not, you know, their job very often is to be in the, in the office and, you know, uh, thinking about how to handle uh, sources in the field. And, and so it's not action, you know. So um, it's big. And I told Canal, Canal was a, a little bit surprised that there was no action. And I told them, you know, you don't often die in this world, you know. It's rare to die. You can be in the field, you can be in the middle of a battle, of a war, and then you can die. And you can be, you know, you can be a prisoner of very bad guys. And yes, it's dangerous. This is why sometimes in the show, our characters die. Because it's it's a dangerous job, but it's not often. So, and I think that you can be spectacular. You can be, um, uh, even if you don't have any action. But this is why it's because my inspiration came from John Le Carré, and John Le Carré, you know, what was very fascinating for me, and this is why I always wanted to do a, a, a movie. Like the like the Patriot, but uh, like uh, the, the Bureau, is because John Le Carré was able to create so much tension just with people around the table. It was incredible, and it was incredibly tense just because of the power struggle between 
characters who meet around the table. This is what I wanted to do. I, I, I wanted to share this emotion I had uh, reading John Le Carre. And, and it's absolutely true. Chris and I are both fans of Le Carre. We love that aspect, the great game that all the players are engaged in. The final point, and this was the one that I received the most criticism for in my coverage, was not understanding a French concept of l'amour fou, or the crazy love <laughs> idea. And I wondered if you could speak about the role that that concept has in the show, because we haven't mentioned characters yet, we should begin to, um, with Guillaume, Paul, the most professional, the most competent, the most contained person gives it all up for love. And on some level, that is understood or respected as part of life. And I, I think a lot about my favorite character, Duflo, his last words, Sefou, that he repeats in the Rev at the end. I'm going to keep throwing it in just to make Chris <laughs> uncomfortable. Um, and how central that idea is both to the show and maybe as a concept that as Americans, we are not familiar with. I think that uh, Guillaume has the same problem as me in the, in the real life. He has the obsession to control everything he does. You know, he has this control obsession. So I think that his only mistake is to think that he can control the situation. It's not. It's you know what he, the mistake he he he, he does is he, not very uh, important. I think that he he, he calls. Um, he calls Nadia just once. And Nadia is in Paris. It's surprising. He didn't know that. Uh, and this is why everything starts. This is when everything, all the trouble starts. And then he thinks that he can control that. He, he can, you know, he can handle this situation. He has this uh, illusion that he can handle. Is you know, and this is the, it's the problem. You don't handle any situation. If you break the rules, this is what Dufour said. If you break the rules, it's over. It's too late. You can't go back uh, to, the, to, to the situation before. And uh, the five seasons, just to know that, you know, and the more, more, um, the more you want to control and to go back, and, and the worse it is. So, uh, I don't know if it's French. It's not l'amour fou. You know, loving somebody in the real world, I think that all, that all, all um, officers from all secret services in the world can fall in love. Um, and, and sometimes I think that everywhere in the world, they can ask themselves, where are my priorities? My, you know, my commitment to my, uh, to my country? Uh, my uh, commitment to, to, to the one I love, to my family or to my, or to my lover. And it's a question I think that uh, you can, you can you know, meet everywhere. But most of the time, these kind of people, they have loyalty to their country and to their, to, 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 to their flag. But it's not so easy. I think that some, it's not so easy. This is, this is the only thing. It's not, it's not the amour fou. I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, uh, he is not fool. He's not fool. <laughs> He's not a fool. This is Guillaume. Uh, Mathieu Kasovic said something very, 
uh, writing to uh, about his character. He said, "This guy wants to do right. He wants to do things right. Uh, he wants to fix what he did. You know the, the problems. This is the problem because the more he wants to fix it, uh, the more he has he, he gets in trouble. He's a good guy. That's the problem." He's a really good guy. He wants to fix the, the situation with Nadia. He wants to fix the situation with the, the GAC. Uh, and no, you, you, you can't fix it. It's too late. Don't break the rule. Well, he has the, he has the one job in the world where when you, when you tell that one lie, there are all these other people saying, I'm ready to pounce on you. It's the FSB and the CIA and everybody is waiting for that one, that one mistake. You know, you mentioned Le Carre. And I was curious what you, whether you felt that Guillaume was a patriot. Because when you read Le Carre, there's usually somewhere deep in Tinker Tailor or deep in Little Drummer Girl or deep in, in one of his novels, there will be a paragraph or two about defending the West or the ideals that they're sort of standing for, something about England. But most of it is about this, this great game, like this, these, this chess match. Do you think that the people that you're writing about are, would you call them patriots? Yeah. Yeah. They are patriots and they don't ask any question about what, do I, what they are fighting for and why they are fighting with. You know, there's no question. I think that the only thing that is intention in their life, and Guillaume, but also Cisteron or Marina, every, every character, it's the tension between two involvement, the private involvement and the public involvement. You know, you fight for two codes, the social code and the private code. And this, the, the tension between these two codes uh, is very strong. And this is what interests me. Because uh, even if you are, if you are you know, a political activist, Sometimes you ask yourself, what am I doing that? Do I want to sacrifice the one I love to the cause I want to fight for? And this is a real problem. And uh, I, I think that it's an eternal question and tension that we have inside us because we are social creatures. So uh, we fight for, you know, the others and we fight for our countries, but also we are we love some some people we have our family we have our very little piece of land and and then uh sometimes you can synchronize the two the two fights you know yeah it's very uh, this is this is what is very interesting in in spy um shows or spy movies i think one of the most impressive aspects of the series as a whole is that, as you said, Eric, the Guillaume breaks something small, and then the cracks continue for five seasons. It was almost like watching, you know, a trapeze walker at the at the circus, seeing how you manage to keep this one story moving uh, mm. forward until it reached its conclusion. That said, we felt there is a moment, there's a there's a, a point at the end of season two before the beginning of season three where the show changes, the storytelling changes slightly. And I wanted wondered if you could talk about that that moment. The 
Guillaume in Paris section ends, obviously. But also the storytelling took a wide leap into the Middle East as a whole with new characters, new settings, new production challenges, I'm sure. And now we are in a box, literally, with (laughs) ISIS. Could you talk a little bit about that point, that inflection point where the show went from being what it was in the beginning to the much larger canvas? Well, uh, at the end of the first season, we understood that the balance between interiors and exteriors was not the good one. Uh, We felt that we found a good balance uh, around episode six of the first season. Because we, you, you go to uh, you know to uh, Algeria, Algeria yeah. and uh, a little bit. So uh, I think that we changed uh, we changed the balance between uh, all the interior action and the and the field. But you know, at the moment you take your pen to write something on a blank paper, you're not free anymore. You have to follow the rules that you decide, that you create yourself. It's incredible. And I, I always say that to the young writers and that you are free, absolutely free, before writing a word. You know? mm-hmm. But uh, at the moment you write a word, it's over. You have, you know, you, you have your own uh, desires, you know, you have your own imagination, you want to go there, but you can't go there in the way you want because you, 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 you wrote a word and, and a sentence and another word. And this word creates a logic. There's a logic you have to follow. So you can't, you, you, you are not free anymore. So, and another basic rule we had in the, on the writing on the bureau is that you have to burn, we say that in French, in French, you have to burn all your chips, all your mm-hmm. chips. Yeah. Don't keep something, you know, if you have a good idea, you know, write it, put it in the, in the, in the season. Don't, don't keep it for the next one. Burn everything, you know, and then sometimes, and, and you have, so, so you have the logic of your writing. You have to follow the logic of your writing. And you have this rule, don't keep it for, for the next season. Do everything you can for this season. This is why at the end of the season, season two, we got this uh, hero, a prisoner of ISIS, and really, we don't know what we are going to, uh, how we are going to, to, free him, uh, to free him at the end. I don't, we don't know, the, we don't have the, any solution for that. This is what, and this is what I like, you know. And then we will see how we can handle this situation, narrative situation, in the season three. But uh, I could say we just have to follow the logic of our own imagination. Mm-hmm. So, by that logic, then was much of what happened towards the end. Not, I mean, I know aside from the stuff that you handed off, but was season five something that happened once you were done season four and you said, okay, now we have to think of what happens next. Or were there parts of the ending that you had already planned when you first started writing? No, I, I have, uh, I knew, I know what I, where I want to go. 
I don't know how I will go there. If I can go there, I just have you know a very uh, broad vision picture of where I want to go. The question we ask, you know, the question we ask ourselves when we write the next season is two kinds of questions. The first one is what can we say about our characters that could be new? What new situation? Uh, so we don't want to do the same thing. Okay, so uh, do we have? Something new to to say about them. We want Duflo to be on the field. That's new. Uh, we want Marie-Jeanne to have responsibilities. That's new. We want Marina to fall in love with somebody. You know, all, all these things. And we ask ourselves, where do we want to go? Uh, what kind of geostrategic stuff we want to talk about? This is why we thought that we could say something about Saudi Arabia for the, the, the season five. And this is why for the season five, for example, it's, it was not uh, about ISIS anymore because ISIS was, the, the, the war against ISIS was over, or almost over. And it was uh, um, funny that uh, for the first season, you know, ISIS was born when we were uh, I think creating the, the show, and it was over at the end. Mm -hmm. You know, it was kind of four years uh, of life, uh, Isis. So, and and the Russia, um, Russia, the, the the Russia came back on the field. Where Russia came back in the game, you know, it was this season four. This is why we decided to talk about Russia because Russia came back in the game. So we stopped before China. <laughs> we stopped the show before China came. Uh, you know, was a, a lot of a lot of weight. So you mentioned Eric um, some of our favorite characters. You just mentioned Marina and Raymond Duflo, and one of the things that Chris and I love about television and love particularly about the Bureau is you begin to watch the series you don't even notice the guy with the computer. By episode nine, I would take a bullet for Sylvain. I love him so much. You know, the, yes. these small characters become major characters just by behavior. Knowing that the audience has fallen in love with your primary characters, the pressure when you add people to add the right ingredients must be high, high pressure to do that. Specifically, I, I wondered if you could talk about the creation of a character like Jonas. You cast a comedian, from what we understand. I saw him on Nailed It France, <laughs> totally unrecognizable with pastries. With Gigi A, you have the opportunity to add one of the greatest actors in Europe in season four. And with Karlov, an actor, a Ukrainian actor whom we've never seen, who becomes the emotional heart of the last season of your show all of yeah. these decisions we were reward you were rewarded for but could you talk about the decision making that led to those characters yes at first you have a you have just you know the desire of the kind of character and then you're right to say that it's very specific for tv because you have time when you write for TV, and 
TV shows, you have time to develop characters and to put them in very different situations. That you don't have, you don't do that with a feature movie. You know, it's just one shot. But with TV, you have your character. Your character, you, you get, you know, gets married. Okay, that's great. So he's, he's a, he, uh, in a couple, and then you see how he behave with um, with his partner. And then at the uh, we can he can divorce. He can be alone, you know. And then he can be uh, frightened about loneliness. And so you can put the character uh, in a very different situation. So this is the the luxury of writing for TV. So you have a character in your mind, and then you find an actor for that for for this character. And and all the destiny of the characters depends on the actors you choose to, to, to play the character. It's very important. You know, it's not independent of the, car, of the actor. And the actors you choose for a show, what you ask from them is very different than from a movie. You ask them to be able to be interesting for several seasons. So, you know, you can't reduce them to one action or to one scene or just to one situation and to one movie. They have to, you know, they have to stand. They have to be fascinating for several seasons. So it's a very special kind of actor that can do that. And it's a very special kind of acting. And one of the rules, one of the, you know, one of the key for that is to keep some opacity. You have to, to, to be an enigma. Like people in the, in the, like people you like, you know, even, you know, you, you can, you can live uh, for 30 years with the same uh, women or, or man. You don't know him or her. You don't know her, you know, mm-hmm. because there's mystery. I mean, it, so this mystery is absolutely critical for, um, for a show. And then, when you create a character like Jonas, you 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 search for an actor to, to to play Jonas, and you really don't know what you will do with him because it depends on what the actor will do with the character. And sometimes you you say you know sometimes it's okay it's great but I don't know what I'm going to do with you with the character or with the actor. But when you have an actor, you know, like uh, uh, us, uh, then you have uh, something is, is created, bit, uh, some osmosis is created between the actor and the character. And then you want, you want to do more with them. You know, it inspires, it inspires you to do something else, to, to put them, to put the character or the actor in another situation. So this is why after that, in the, the, season, the next season, you want something else. And it, it's really, it's not the character. It's the character and the actor that leads you to write other situations. I, I mean, the transition from we meet Jonas exiting the bathroom in season three, and then season four begins with him on a sand dune like Lawrence of Arabia, that is a character arc that is very unexpected and very rewarding. Yes, I think that we learn to love them. 
it's a basic love at first, and then it's real love. At, uh, uh, it, it's real all love them, after that. All so, of them, even even Karloff. Yeah, you know, Karloff becomes. Yeah, absolutely. I love. Yes, the heart because you really want to dig deeper and deeper on the character and on what the actor can bring to the character. And even those those moments when he's really feeling it, when when the walls are starting to close in on him, when he's in Cambodia, or you know, it's just no matter who he is or what he's done, you it's it's such an identifiable emotion to know that oh, everything that I've built is collapsing. You know, like I, I, I made one mistake, and here it is. That's what I like with TV writing, also, because a bad guy can become not good, but just human. Yeah. Speaking of the fifth season, obviously you wound up handing off the reins to a colleague to, to finish the season. And it's, it's such an amazingly courageous and fascinating decision. We're, we're you, fascinated. We're fascinated. Uh, can you tell us what it was like to give up your baby? It was not a baby anymore. It was a teenager. <laughs> yeah. Then you were like, the get teenager, out of the house. You know, yeah. The, you wanted the, to go out to dinner with your wife. You go out of the house anyway. So you, you, can't, you, <laughs> you can't keep them at home. Um, I didn't want to write the end and to put my feelings inside the story. This is not about me. And the best way to stay, to, to, you know, to keep it alive without your own feeling or your own uh, responsibility into the writing is to give it to somebody else. So this is why I asked, I, I had the, this idea to ask somebody else to end the, the show, but I had to find uh, someone who was uh, courageous enough to do it and talented enough to do it. And this is, it was a Jack Odiar. And I told him, you can do what you want. You really can do it. blank page. Uh, I will help you as much as you want, but you do what you want with the characters. If you want to kill this one or this one, you, you do it. If you want to keep this one, if you want to skip this one, you do it. I will write the end of the episode eight, to help you, but I, I, I think that it was kind. Of, it's not. It was not courageous for my, for me. I, I, I could say that it's not. It's the, it's the opposite. Maybe because I'm a coward. I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I, uh, I don't. I didn't want to speak about myself. You know, ending the show. It's not about me. But it's. It was incredible. In. The idea is incredible. The execution was incredible. And it's even more incredible now hearing you say that you related to Guillaume for his need for control. And in the moment, you learned from him and you relinquished control. I can't imagine that was easy. And I think the result was absolutely unique in television because, as you said, Eric, we all fall in love with characters. It is the nature of television. And because of that, finales even successful finales of wonderful shows tend to be about the show. They tend to be about giving every character their perfect goodbye, their little moment, almost like a reward for the years we spent with them. What was so thrilling about the two-part finale 
was there was no sentimentality. Marina is is barely in it. Uh, People's lives, Sylvan was not in it. People's lives went on or they didn't. And I've never seen, usually we say in, in English, maybe you've heard this, a good finale sticks the landing, right? Like in a gymnast. I've never seen a finale that left the runway and took yeah, off yeah. the way the way yours did. And so I wonder just specifically, is if you could tell us a moment or two that surprised you in the finale of your own show and a moment or two that felt you agreed, you would have done that or that that was correct. Well, for me, it was an ama- amazing and unique experience because I... I I didn't know Jack Odiar, you know. We, we crossed our ways, uh, not, not just once or twice, but I, I didn't know him. And and uh, working with him, it was a creative experience, absolutely incredible, because I, I was in his mind. Because I saw him, I was with him when he was... Uh, Thinking about what what he will do with the characters and with the sh- and with the show, and then I helped him a, l- a little bit. I-, I wrote for him as a staff writer. Uh, I directed a few scenes for him, uh, and it it was amazing, incredible to be in his mind. So I, I had the experience to have a cre- a very close look at the way a creator like him is working. It's incredible. So this is a, 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 an amazing and unique experience. Uh, and he works very differently. Like uh, he's, he's very different from me because when I write a script, I write the script and then I, I, I direct it. Okay. There's the writing and the directing. Even when you direct a, a scene, you invent things, you create, you are, you know, you create things, new things, and you get, and you give new, new meaning to the, um, the writing. Okay. But uh, Jacques is writing while he's direct. He, he, he writes while he's direct. You know, the writing is not over. He, he writes, and every time he rewrites everything. He changed everything on the set because the writing is not over. The writing will keep on moving. You know, we will keep on being, uh, it's alive. It's a really alive. So there's not the writing part and the directing part. The writing and the directing is the same, you know, uh, it's very different for me and it's, it's fascinating. And I think that the, 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 the same, the, the sequence of the banquet, you know, the banquet at the end, everybody around the table with Karloff and the dog and Guillaume. So I saw this scene coming from scratch. You know, I really saw it. I, 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 I've been the witness of, um, uh, of the creation of this scene. But when I saw the scene edited, directed with the music, it, uh, you know, it was. I told myself this is why I asked him to 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 end the show because this scene I can't do that. You know, 
it's one of the, mo- the, the most beautiful scenes of the, of the old the five seasons. And this is exactly what I wanted him to do, to, 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 to end and to, to, to create something, you know. Uh, this is, in the, you know, it's so powerful, so moving. So, you know, it justified everything for me. Mm. So you get to the end. You've had your time to rest. Do you still yes. <laughs> want to do more? Do you still, are, do you still have uh, a, a rekindled desire to go back to this world? Or do you want to go try and do other things? I think be- be- Because we noticed in the New York Times, Matthew Kasovitz, who has the perfect ending for his character, it was like, is on, in the New York Times saying, I think Eric <laughs> needs to rest and then let's do more. Yeah, yeah. Stars usually don't say that. <laughs> yes. Um, I have uh, several projects and uh, I-, I want to do more in this uh, area but more international. Mm-hmm. So my, 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 next, my next show will be kind of uh, Game of Thrones of Intelligence. This is my next show. That's quite a you pitch. Know, <laughs> the, yeah, the big game. You, 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 you talk about the, 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 the great game. Yeah. But this is the, yeah. I think that what is important is to have, a, you know, just to have, a, I'm not through with geopolitics. This is, I am really interested about, uh, because we live in a world that is very complex, but we, we, we are, you know, all the consequences of the crisis, we, we are, you know, have consequences in our private life. So I need, uh, I really want to, to say something about that. So this is one of my new projects. But I have other projects that have nothing that have nothing to do with with um, with intelligence. Well, I, I get the feeling that the geopolitics isn't through with us either. So we, we <laughs> yeah, have. That. No, no. Yeah, <laughs> right. do, do you think that we should hold out hope that in the larger Game of Thrones, Eric Rochon geopolitical universe? Yeah. Is Mary Jean still in her job? Like, is that because one of the great things about Le Carre are these writers who have long oeuvres is that. A major character from here can be a minor character here. It is all Absolutely, connected. Yes, we can do that. Yes, pick one, and uh, I, I, I will try to. to <laughs> okay, to <clean> we, you. <laughs> we will pick one, and we we'll will let one. you know. Yeah, but, thank you, <laughs> Eric. Thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for this amazing television show. It's given Andy and I so much joy and so much to think about. It's such a thank gift. You thank very you very much. Thank you very much, and uh, have a good day. Thank you. You too. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to our interview with Eric Rochant. You can listen to all the episodes of our Bureau podcast uh, in a playlist that we'll be sharing from the Watch Social accounts. This episode was produced by Kaya McMullen. 